The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. This is our year, right? 25th anniversary of the signing of the ADA, and I'll be talking about that all year. I first have to say... Um, I hope all my friends are safe in the Northeast with this blizzard uh, here in Pittsburgh. Thank goodness we got snow, but it did not hit us. But best wishes and safety to all of my friends. Well, we got a great show today. We have a great show because I have someone as my guest that is a national civil rights leader for people with disabilities. She is so well-known. She's sort of like Cher, you know? All you have to say is hi, and they know who you're talking about. And she is the, a commissioner at EEOC. She is a fighter for all of us. She is a friend. I just love her. Welcome to the show. Hi, Feldblum. Thank you. I bet you never had anyone compare you to Cher, huh? No, never did. I, I definitely <laughs> like that. <laughs> I'd love to have a voice. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you what. You have made so many great impacts. I have to tell you this. Before I ever met you, Sandy Finucane told me, Joyce, you've got to meet Hi Feldblum. She was so involved with the ADA, and of course, since then, I know you and know how highly respected you are. But for those of you listening to the show, as you know, this is our year to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and Commissioner Feldblum was actually involved in helping to draft that law. What I wanted to do, and I've done this with so many of our guests, is if you could just take us back, take us back 25 years ago, tell us how you got involved and what that means to you today. Sure, and um, welcome and hello to all your listeners. Well, I was lucky enough to get hired by the ACLU AIDS Project in 1988. And at that time, if people can remember, people with AIDS were facing significant discrimination. And so advocates for people with AIDS were looking to have Congress pass a law that would prohibit such discrimination. Well, a number of us agreed that the best way to combat discrimination was to get a law passed that would protect all people with disabilities from discrimination, <coughs> including people with AIDS. And that law ultimately became the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. And I feel very grateful to have been lucky to have been one of the main lawyers responsible for drafting and negotiating that law. And of course, now, um, 
what it means to me is seeing some of the impact in the lives of people with disabilities and as a commissioner of one of the five commissioners of the agency responsible for implementing the ADA, I'm uh, working hard on making the ADA uh, as strong as possible through guidance, litigation, etc. Isn't that amazing? Where mm. you started and now what you're doing today. Yep. Started by drafting it and today you are enforcing it. Right. Good thing. That is just uh, that is just wonderful, and you know that that just has to have such an impact on you when you think about it. Yeah, I mean it's important to me as a person with a disability, a, a mental disability of anxiety disorder. But I think it's even more important in terms of seeing the impact that it's made, the important impact um, for people with disabilities across the country. And by the way, I remember very well how uh, people with AIDS just had such a hard time getting employment and Mm -hmm. were so ostracized uh, that, you know, I could see why you were doing that. Thank goodness we've come a long way, certainly not all the way, Mm -hmm. but made great progress since then. Yep. So, hi, were you there the day it was signed? Um, Well, I was there. it was an amazing, joyous day. We had an awesome party that night. Um, it, was, it was a great day. Um, there were a few uh, people that the White House decided they weren't going to invite to the signing itself, um, you know, largely for political reasons. I was working for the ACLU at the time. Uh, the idea of the card-carrying member of the ACLU was rife within the Republican Party. But I have to say... That day was joyous and amazing, and as I said, we had an awesome party that night. You know, what was it like to all, to all the people with disabilities? I mean, in a way, it must have been shocking that it actually happened. Well, I mean, shocking maybe, except that so many people had been involved. So many people had poured their energy and passion into getting the law passed. And, of course, you always have to have optimism when you're, entering the legislative process. So I'm hoping people weren't shocked as much as simply joyous. Well, it was certainly a joyful day uh, to suddenly be equal with everyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is the greatest civil rights legislation, uh, uh, most recent to all of us, and, of course, Quality of life for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, back then when you worked on it, you know how you were saying you poured your heart as everyone else did? You know, Justin, Pat Wright, so many people, mm-hmm. uh, Senator uh, Harkin, Tony. I mean, I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I was not involved at that time, uh, but I knew it happened. But mm. wow, I mean, you know, right. what a great thing. Um, but, you know, you had to have had uh, barriers that you dealt with during that time to try to get it through. Could you give us a couple examples of that? Um, sure. I mean, the barriers were simply the fact that um, it was sometimes hard to explain that people with disabilities needed civil rights, right? One of our slogans at the time was, don't give us your dimes, give us our rights. 
So for so long, people had been thinking about people with disabilities, with pity, with charity, um, but not so much thinking about civil rights. Um, I think another barrier is that um, we all know that for people with disabilities, for example, to be able to have good jobs, they have to not only be able to get hired, which is often getting past people's stigma and prejudice, but then they need reasonable accommodations while they're on the job, and that can cost money. Not as much money as people tend to think, but it is still an expenditure of costs. And, you know, that's, that's always hard to get through Congress, anything that's going to cost money. Same thing in terms of public accommodations. may not have been hard for people to open the door and let someone with cerebral palsy come into their movie theater, but the idea that they might have to retrofit that movie theater or that um, business, even though the standard was, again, very low in terms of what they had to do, it was still a cost, which people don't necessarily associate with civil rights. But as I said, all barriers, I believe, can be overcome with persistence and passion, and I think that's what happened in terms of passage of the ADA. Well, I'll tell you what, we have a caller on the line right now, and I am going to put that caller through, who I have a feeling is buried in that blizzard. Chris, are you on the line? <laughs> yeah, we are, we are buried in this blizzard, let me tell you. Oh, Chris I, Griffin, you made it to a phone. <laughs> I did. This is a perfect time to call because uh, I'm sitting here just watching uh piles and piles of snow uh, uh, direct up against uh, windows and everything else. It's, it's pretty intense. It's still snowing like crazy. So, uh, I know. Anyway. I, saw, I saw in the news that Massachusetts uh, got hit very hard. So, well, that means you were home and you were able to call in. And Chris is uh, another great disability rights leader with the uh, Disability Law Project in Boston. So, Chris, thanks for calling in, and go ahead. Uh, highs on well, the phone. When I heard who your guest was, I said, oh, I have to call because <laughs> I, I have to tell you, hi, I am so frustrated with this employment issue. Um, you know, I the reason I'm so passionate about it, as you know, is mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's about self-worth, it's about net worth, but more importantly for me, it's about really, I, I do believe employment uh, of people with disabilities is really the way we're going to change society's views about people with disabilities. When we're in the workforce and a critical mass, things will change because, as you stated, it's easy to let people into a, uh, into a movie theater or a um, restaurant, something like that. And while all of that is for access to that stuff is great, it doesn't change society's views about uh, what people with disabilities can and, and, and cannot do. I think it happens mm-hmm. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, I am still so frustrated with the inability to get people with disabilities hired. I was on a call today with some folks from a federal agency, a federal agency, that were questioning whether they really needed to provide something in a bigger font to one of their employees. A bigger font, uh, a button. So I, I just, I'm still frustrated with what the answer is and how we actually make this 
you know, this seismic shift that we have, to, we still have to make in employment. Right. I'm so glad that you asked that question. I know it's something that um, Joyce would have asked me because it's, it's I know, one of her, um, would, for all of us, one of the important things. So let me say a few things. One of the unfinished businesses of our civil rights work is to move the needle on the employment of people with disabilities. We cannot say that clearly and strongly enough. And the ADA is a necessary piece of that work, but it's not enough. So here's the thing. The ADA can do certain things. I think it can help ensure that people with disabilities, or help ensure that people with disabilities won't get fired from jobs they already have because it's often easier to prove discrimination in those cases than when people with disabilities just don't get hired in the first place. It can also help people with disabilities get the accommodations they need to do their jobs, but as you just described in that phone call you had this morning, that requires vigilant, vigilant enforcement of the ADA in the federal government, which is something we, the EOC, as you well know, have jurisdiction over, as well as in the private sector. And that's where I say that the litigation EOC brings, the opinions we hand down in cases brought to us by federal applicants and employees, the regulations we issue, that's all important for that piece. But the reason the ADA will never be enough to move the needle on employment of people with disabilities is that the ADA itself cannot force employers to affirmatively want diversity in their workplaces, okay, including the diversity that would be brought about by hiring people with disabilities. The law is simply not equipped to do that. It is a non-discrimination law. It's not a law that directly incentivizes employers to go the extra mile, hire the person with a disability, even when that disability is manifest during the application process. So we need more. And, you know, as you both know, um, we have been putting a lot of energy here at the EOC on expanding the Section 501 requirements, which requires the federal government to engage in affirmative action in hiring people with disabilities. And the Labor Department certainly took the lead on that by issuing regulations under Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act regarding federal contractors. But, of course, the key next step is, will those work? What do we need to do to make those laws work to move the needle? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but it's still, I find that, you know, now that I'm back out in in the... in the field, so to speak, and, you know, getting calls every day from people with disabilities who either, you know, aren't getting, you know, picked uh, when they apply for jobs or are being asked still very discriminatory questions are, in the case I described, you know, a long-term employee of a federal agency Mm. actually being asked for medical documentation to increase the font size in materials provided. It just is so frustrating that yep. we're still at that stage, you know, of, of, uh, of uh, misunderstanding about what, what's required or how to accommodate people. Yep. 
anyway. No, I agree, and that's why I'm glad that at least not only the three of us are fighting, but hundreds of people across the country. We all know there are yeah. people who are fighting to change this, and that's what needs to help us get up each morning and go at it yeah. again. It's, it's only what keeps me going. Yeah, well, I'm very <laughs> glad that you're at EEOC because it is a very key um, component of the enforcement uh, mechanism for this. And uh, we actually, years ago at the Disability Law Center, uh, when I was director there, before we actually wrote a, a really good practice manual on disability rights for uh, people with disabilities in Massachusetts, you know, so we talk about state law as well as federal law, and actually we're in the process. We, we just um, rewrote that uh, two-volume uh, manual, and we're going to be kicking it off with the Mass Continuing Legal Education, uh, you know, entity here in Massachusetts at the end of June. So I'm going to be in touch with you and see if you can come up and talk about employment and talk about, you know, what's, what's the next phase as we... As we implement the Amendments Act and we aren't fighting anymore about whether someone actually has a disability or not, you know, what, what's the next line of, of, uh, of cases we're going to see and, and what do we need to do to be prepared? So, right. so I'll be sending you that information and hoping you can come up and, and do that. But, um, again, it's, it's great that you are there and... Uh, you can influence what happens at the EOC. Well, I love it. Thank you for calling in, All Chris. Right. And I, I am, I am um, pleased that I am following in your footsteps here at the EOC. Okay. <laughs> so thank thank you. you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. All right, Thanks, bye. Chris. Thanks for bye, calling Grace. in. Bye-bye. Right, oh, that is awesome that, she, that Chris Griffin called in. She, too, was with EEOC before she went to uh, OPM, and as you well know, hi, this is very frustrating, this whole area of employment. With 501, I mean, you know, what about the executive order that President Obama issued years ago, you know, about the 100,000 people being hired? What what happened with that? Well, um On the 20th anniversary of the ADA, in July 2010, the president issued an executive order calling on all federal agencies to establish for themselves a target hiring goal for hiring people with disabilities generally, that is the wide range of people with disabilities covered under the ADA, as well as a target hiring goal for people with what is called in the federal government targeted disabilities. And it's, uh, it's not that one disability is uh, more important than another. The idea about the targeted disabilities are the ones who have disabilities that are more manifest in the application process and therefore more likely to experience discrimination right at that juncture. Um, so the executive order called for that, but um, and both OPM and EOC were given some roles in that. But... An executive order can never actually be as strong as a regulation. A regulation is embedded in the law, cannot be undone by another, um, you know, president. Um, it has more, um, more means of accountability. And that's why um, I have been, one of my main priorities here at the agency has been 
to get a revitalization of the Section 501 regulations on our agenda. So just to make it clear again why Section 501 of the Rehabilitation Act that applies to the federal government and Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act that applies to private businesses that have contracts from the federal government. Why those are so important is that they do include provisions that require affirmative action in hiring people with disabilities. Now, for years, a similar affirmative obligation placed on the federal government and on federal contractors with regard to race and gender has meant that the federal government has expected to see real results in the hiring of people of color and women by the federal government and by federal contractors. So the goal of reinvigorating the Section 503 regulations by the Department of Labor for federal contractors and the Section 501 regulations by the EEOC with regard to the federal government are so important. So I think the one well, other... I mean, the good, the good news here mm-hmm. is that companies are contacting me that never called me before because of 503. But my hope is two things. Number one, that they realize this is real. You know, that OFCCP will enforce this as time goes on. And the second thing I'm hopeful for is that somehow there is a focus on, you call it targeted disabilities. In our world, we call it significant disabilities. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's ironic that when I started this company, and by the way, this is our 20-year anniversary, which I'm so excited about. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. But when we started the company, I was affiliated with a school, and the people at the school, people with disabilities, the majority had significant disabilities. And it was very clear to me, oh, the more significant the disability, the harder it is to gain employment. So we just focused on that, you know, throughout the Bender years, and I wish that was more part of 503. Yes, and so... um That is one of the things about the 503 regulations is they don't differentiate between the ones that, again, we did it targeted because of the target focus on those who are most likely to experience discrimination. Um, So, you know, that decision was made in 503 not to distinguish between the two. We have a very different history in the federal government, and so I expect that history will be um, reinforced by the new 501 regulations. And what I mean by that is, for several decades now, every federal agency has reported to the EOC how many employees with disabilities are in their workforces, and they report those figures to us in two Categories. Well, actually, they report to us simply the ones with targeted disabilities, the ones that we are most concerned in ensuring are getting through that gridlock um, at the beginning of employment. The Office of Personal Management knows the, the number of all people with disabilities. So that reporting creates more accountability by the federal government um, workforce than any other workforce. 
Right. And in addition, the federal government has a dedicated hiring authority for applicants with disabilities called Schedule A Hiring Authority that puts applicants with disabilities on a fast track method of getting hired. And of course, your company knows that quite well because you have a contract to compile and provide a list of people with disabilities looking for jobs in the federal government. And again, People on that list tend to be the ones with more significant disabilities. Those are the ones that use Schedule A authority the most. So those are two important bedrock components already in place. And then on top of that, what we are doing now are two things. One, as I said, we're updating our regulations for Section 501 to make sure to help federal agencies do an even better job of recruiting, hiring, and retaining employees with disabilities. And the second thing we're doing, in coordination with the Office of Disability Employment Policy at Department of Labor and the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, which is essentially the HR, Human Resources Office for the federal government, in conjunction with those two agencies, we are working on updating five brochures that we have called the ABCs of Schedule A. Um, We've already updated one, which is on our website. We're going to update the other four. The combination of really putting out details about what the 501 regulations (coughs) mean and putting out this easy-to-understand information, I believe, I hope, And I believe that that will result in actual increased hiring of people with significant disabilities in the federal workforce. And then, as Chris Griffin just said, the best way of changing hearts and minds about the capacity of people with disabilities is to have people with disabilities, significant disabilities, working right next to you in the workplace. Absolutely. That is so true. And don't misunderstand me. I am so appreciative, President Obama, that after 41 years that that 503 has happened, well, is being enforced. I am so thrilled that final rule came out and that now federal contractors must be compliant because I am already seeing a change, and I believe it will be the biggest boost of employment for people with disabilities, bigger than the ADA. I, I am so excited I, I agree. About this. I agree for this reason. Like I said, ADA did not have within it the mechanisms to force employers to want diversity in the context of disability. What this Department of Labor has done under the leadership of Pat Chu, under the leadership of Tom Perez, under the leadership of President Obama, what they have done for the first time is put teeth into those Section 503 regulations. I mean, that's huge. And again, they had to work with what they understood the law required, but the bottom line is those regulations are huge. People, companies are calling you, as you said, who have never called before. And I will tell you, and I just said this uh, at a the committee meeting of, of uh, getting people with disabilities into competitive employment, integrated competitive employment that was set up by um, the Workforce uh, Investment Opportunity Act, was testifying before them on Friday. I said, thank goodness Department of Labor came out with those regulations, because let me tell you, I use that inside this agency 
to say, we've got to come out with 501 regulations. I mean, I just tapped into the competitive spirit to say, hey, let's us do this as well. So I don't think one can overstate the importance of those Section 503 regulations being issued. That is awesome. That That is really awesome what happened. And, yes, it is having an impact, and, and it will continue to have an impact. So I guess what you're saying about the ADA, the ADA, of course, open doors, uh, you know, transportation, uh, civil rights discrimination, but not employment. Uh, I still remember when Justin Dart said, that, you know, it's just the beginning. It's the right, beginning, but, it's but we not have... That it, so in law, there's a phrase called a necessary but not sufficient condition. Okay? A necessary but not sufficient condition. And what that means in the law is that in order... That, that sometimes to achieve a certain result, you need something as a foundation. So if you don't have that... It is a necessary condition. If you don't have that, forget it. But if you just have that, you're not going to reach your end goal because it's not a sufficient condition. So my belief is that the ADA took us half the way in employment. It's not like the ADA was, um, uh, was not effective in employment. The thing is it wouldn't necessarily show up in the employment statistics that the federal government collects. Okay, so the employment statistics for people with disabilities that the federal government collects through the census covers a very small subset of people with disabilities. It's literally people with disabilities that, have, that are deaf, that are blind, that have significant mobility impairments. That's all they cover. They don't cover the literally, those statistics, don't cover the millions of other people with disabilities, with diabetes, with epilepsy, with HIV, with anxiety disorder, with rheumatoid arthritis, right? They don't cover all those people. They just don't collect data on that. So all of those people, we don't even know the figures of people with diabetes and epilepsy and HIV that were able to retain their jobs because of the ADA. Prior to the ADA, a lot of those people would have been fired. Prior to the ADA, a lot of those people would not have gotten reasonable accommodations. Okay? So, but those, those gains by the ADA are not reflected in the employment statistics that the federal government captures. Anytime you see those statistics of the significant unemployment and underemployment of people with disabilities, it's always this smaller subset. Now, this smaller subset overlaps significantly with what you call significant disabilities, what we call targeted disabilities, and these are folks who have the biggest problem getting into the door in the first place. For that, the ADA is not a sufficient law, right? It's not sufficient because all the ADA says is you may not discriminate, and when someone doesn't get hired, they might feel that the reason they didn't get hired was they were using a wheelchair, they needed a sign language interpreter, you know, et cetera. They had cerebral palsy. They had, you know, um, a significant speech impairment. I mean, they might feel it was that reason, but they don't have proof. And the only way an anti-discrimination law can be helpful is if you have proof that the disability was the cause of the failure to hire. 
So the ADA is actually quite important. It's a necessary condition for full employment. It's not sufficient. In order to get these folks with more significant disabilities through the door, you must create some incentive for the employer to want to hire people with disabilities. That's it. You have to do that. And we have no such law at the moment that governs the entire private, you know, employment sector, but we have it for the government contractors and the federal government. Right. Well, I'll tell you, one of my proudest things that ever happened is nine years ago when I obtained a contract with the National Security Agency, and they said, everyone... We're looking only for people with targeted disabilities. Mm -hmm. And here we are. These are people with disabilities working in mathematics, engineering, linguistics. And I remember when uh, Governor Thornburg was speaking, and he said, um, you know, there's this company I really like in Pennsylvania, Bender Consulting, Uh and they have a contract with the NSA. So Uh here's my question. What's your excuse? Uh-huh. And that's so true. You yes, can't hire exactly. an entry-level accountant. I mean, that that is just so true. And um, But as I tell companies, when they come to me and say, Joyce, what are we going to do with 503 to get people to self-identify? And what are we going to do to be more inclusive? I say, oh, that's easy. Hire people. Hire people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because it's not until... You see someone in the workplace being successful that you will break down those barriers. And in addition, why would people self-identify if they don't see this? Right, Because that's the other thing. When employers say to me, Joyce, this is new. You know, we haven't hired people with disabilities before. I say, oh, yes, you have. Yeah, they're here right now. They have bipolar disorder, epilepsy, MS, diabetes, I mean, I could go on forever. Correct. It's just they don't want to tell you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And as you said, create an inclusive environment, and it will feel better for people to self-disclose. Even better, hire new employees with disabilities so you demonstrate your commitment. Um, and, you know, actions always speak louder than words. <laughs> So. Yeah. Hey, we have another caller on the line. I think we have a caller waiting. Caller, are you there? I sure am, Joyce. Uh, this is Tony Quello. <laughs> oh, Tony. Tony, how are you? <laughs> I'm calling oh, to. Oh, come week. <laughs> I'm calling you to thank you and let all Joyce's listeners know just how much you've done for uh, ADA, all disabilities, and so forth. You've been one of our premier leaders, and I just wanted all these listeners to know uh, uh, how I felt about your efforts, and they all should be appreciative of everything you've done. So just wanted you to know that. And the second ah. thing second thing is, is that yep. what you and Joyce were just talking about, um, that was the same thing in regards to women and people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, 503 said... Women, people of color, and the disabled, uh, never implemented disabled. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when women got hired uh, in different spots or people of color got hired, people started to say, well, geez, maybe they are capable of doing these jobs. 
Yeah. And that created an impression. Ruth Ginsburg has, has said that if it weren't for 503, she would not have ended up on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think what you were say, you and Joyce were talking about in regards to uh, hiring people with disabilities, because that would set the example not only for the current employees, but uh, a reputation for the company. But and number three, um, that it would then show that people with disabilities can do these jobs successfully. So you're, you guys were right on, or you gals were right on in your <laughs> discussion there. So I well, to Tony, you. first of all, thank you so much for your kind and nice words. Um, when I said Old Home Week, um, you know, what I meant to say, and say this clear to the listeners, that it's always a team effort to get things done, and, and I'm... I'm sure listeners already know, but I want to reinforce um, the leadership that you have shown. So I just thank you so much. Um, And it's leadership that has, in fact, continued um, in your work on Section 503, supporting EEOC on Section 501 regulations. And, you know, one of the reasons I said you cannot overstate the importance of getting out regulations that now explicate affirmative action as requiring target goals is precisely what you described happened with regard to women and people of color. It's, one could always say, oh, I just hired that other person because that white person, that white male, because he was more qualified. An anti-discrimination law only prohibits discriminating based on color or gender, and that's so hard to, to prove. But yeah. once you have something that says you are going to be judged on whether you reach a certain target. And again, it's not, affirmative action has never meant that you lower your standards, ever. It just means that you have a target, an actual number. There's nothing as dramatic as a number. And that's what got women and people of color into these jobs. And again, as you said, you know, as you said, Beta Ginsburg said, Chris Griffin said, we all know once people get in these jobs that you change people's assumptions, stereotypes, expectations. No, I agree, so, I agree totally. I agree totally. And, <laughs> and I think that uh, what people don't appreciate, uh, as the author of ADA, I realized that the only thing it did was to provide uh, our legal rights to uh, contest discrimination Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, also, of course, helped with a lot of other things, but it didn't give us a job. In 503, right. what you're talking about is what gives us a job. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm told by Pat Chu and others that in the first year of implementation that you will have 464,000 people with disabilities hired. I mean, mm-hmm. that is dramatic. And right. if that's just in the first year. So... Mm-hmm. It would have a huge impact, um, and what you're talking about is exactly right. So uh, I, I really think with ADA um, and 503 and uh, in pre-existing conditions that, and the Justice Department uh, enforcing ADA like it's never been enforced, mm-hmm. um, this president, in my view, has been one of the best, or if not the best, in regards mm-hmm. to. Uh, helping those of us with disabilities. I agree. And as we all know, we got to keep putting our shoulder to the wheel, right? we got to keep working it because 
because we're not where we need to be yet. No, there's a lot of work, a lot of work to be done. We've made great mm-hmm. progress, but it's been slow. Uh, as mm-hmm. you know, I worked on 503 for 25 years, mm-hmm. um, and uh, ADA was fairly quick to get passed, but to get implemented has uh, been very slow. And Tom Perez, who's now Secretary of Labor, uh, when he was head of the Civil Rights Division in Justice, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, really forced. Uh, the compliance with ADA, and you've done a good job at uh, equal employment. I mean, at um, the yeah, commission, yeah, mm-hmm. the commission, and so forth. But forcing the implementation of it, adopted 25 years ago, um, we're still trying to get it enforced. So yeah. uh, it takes time, right? Yep, and as I said, you know, there the enforce. I, I have been incredibly pleased with how proactive the EOC has been right. in um, resolving complaints that come to us from the private sector. I mean, we cover every employer with fifteen or more employees. I've been impressed with the EOC's proactive work in resolving complaints, in reaching settlements, in filing litigation that gets coverage. All of that, I mean, you know, I have been impressed by the work we have done in terms of that enforcement. But going back to what we discussed before, all of that enforcement, I think, primarily helps you get reasonable accommodations on the job if you're already hired. Right. And can give you a remedy if you're fired from an existing job. But there is nothing to enforce inside the ADA to uh, have employers take affirmative steps. There's just nothing in the law. So it's not even about enforcing that piece of the law. That requirement isn't in the law in the first place. Exactly right. So then, to me, 503 obviously affects a quarter of the workforce. American workforce works for private businesses that have contracts with the federal government. So that's huge in terms of that being enforced. The federal government is the largest employer in the United States. Right. So if we can get Section 501, which does require that, those affirmative efforts, if we can get that law really enforced well, and there the EOC is direct enforcement responsibility, you know, if we can get that enforced well, I do think we will move the needle. Right. And, and I think your listeners know that um, that you're on the commission, been very effective and helpful, uh, really was very helpful in getting the ADA uh, drafted and adopted. Um, but the uh, you're only one of five, five or three, I think it's five. Uh, one of five, yeah. One of mm-hmm. five, and so convincing uh, the two others to join with you is not always the easiest thing. Um, but... Uh, you have been effective, and mm-hmm. that's what uh, I realize. Now, it always hasn't been that case. You've had trouble at times because of the break, breakdown of the commission, but mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's a steady progress, which is what's important. So I, yep. I really appreciate all that. <laughs> Thank you. Joyce, I, I apologize for taking all this time, but uh, Chai is such an important factor in the, in the success that we've had on implementation <clears throat> of uh, ADA and so forth as so, well. I just wanted to make sure your listeners knew that. Are you kidding, Tony? It is an honor to have you call in, and I really appreciate you calling in. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Chai. Mm-hmm. We'll talk to you later. Thank you.
Bye-bye. You're very, Bye. you're very popular today, huh? Yes. Good. I just want to say to everyone. I want to say to everyone. the whole team. See, the team. Yeah, the yeah, team. but you're really, as a matter of fact, we have another caller on the line. Okay. Caller, are you there? I'm here. Hey, how are you? I am doing really good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. This is Mark Periello. Hey, hi. How are you? Hi. Excellent. The the old guard, the new guard, everyone in the middle. I love it. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, you know, you are such an outstanding leader, um, an advocate, um, and self-advocate, and you are doing so much tremendous work for people with disabilities um, that, you know, I just wanted to get on the show um, to thank you for all your work, um, mm-hmm. but to also ask a question. Sure. Um, thank you. Mm-hmm. So I just came out of a meeting where we were talking about the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, um, which is mm-hmm. totally unrelated to my question. Um, <laughs> so I missed the, the beginning of the show. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, if you haven't already, about your Curb Cuts initiative, um, because I think it shows um, sort of the innovative way w- in which you approach the work um, mm-hmm. to, to really drive some great change um, while you're in this position at the EEOC. Well, I haven't talked about that yet, and so thank you so much for asking. Um, It also helps me reinforce, I think, the theme that has run all the way through this this show, not only today, but I know Joyce and your others, which is the importance of collaboration, the importance of having a team, the importance of realizing that we're not going to win unless we're all working together. So Curb Cuts to the Middle Class Initiative was something that um, started with um, Bob Williams at the Social Security Administration, huge leader in this field, Eve Hill from Department of Justice, uh, responsible for the disability um, work and the Department of Justice, and me here at the EOC. And our thought was that there were so many different federal agencies that were responsible for some slice of employment of people with disabilities, but if we didn't really bring those efforts together, leverage those efforts, we would not be as effective as we could be. And I will tell you, we were very much driven by the fact that the Section 503 regulations had come out, so we were hoping and expecting a demand, you know, on the side of employers, and the fact that the Affordable Care Act had passed, and so you know, employees would have to be giving insurance, health insurance, the exchanges would be there, would not be um, discriminating based on pre-existing conditions. I mean, these two factors, we really wanted to um, use that potential. And so what we did about a year ago is simply invite other agencies, the Department of Education, hugely important agency in terms of the voc rehab work it does, the training work it does, and the Department of Labor. Again, the training work it does, the focus on disability, but also other agencies, Health and Human Services, Department of Transportation, Veterans Administration, Office of Personnel Management. I mean, all of these agencies are key. So we started meeting over a year ago, year and a half ago probably now, and started coming up with some ideas, just practical ideas that we could do together. Um, and we did this um, ultimately under the aegis of the White House, 
um, the White House supporting us, the White House essentially now, it is the administration's curb cuts to the middle class initiative. That's and just great. to explain those words, it's to the middle class because we want to make it clear that our expectations for people with disabilities is that people with disabilities should be getting as good jobs as anyone else. They, we should be getting access to the middle class. And curb cuts, because sometimes you need to make a curb cut in order to get into the job, just like you need a curb cut to get across the street. And by the way, I am so pleased at the now, you know, the, the effort of the advocacy community, you at AAPD, American Association of People with Disabilities, the range of other disability groups that you, in fact, have pulled together in your offices <laughs> um, to talk about curb cuts. I mean, that's... The agencies can only do so much. You know, we help bring the, all the agencies together to take the work over the finish line. We need to be working with the self-advocates. Right, right. Well, thank you. Um, it's a really exciting initiative, um, and I'm very grateful for your leadership on it, um, along with the leadership of so many others. Great. Well, thank you. Hey, Mark is the CEO of the American Association of People with Disabilities, and Mark, thank you for calling in. No, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Have a great afternoon. Okay. You know, hi, I love this uh, curb cuts. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about collaborating. You know, I always say this. If people with disabilities from all these groups, you know, all not-for-profits, service providers, everything, if, if we would all work together, what a powerhouse that would be. Mm-hmm. Well, and the truth is, I think we are doing what we should be doing. I, I think the disability community is working across disabilities. I have seen that. Um, we are working with other civil rights groups. I have seen that. And we are focusing on the important issue of economic independence and security. We are doing that. That is how we can be a force for change. So we just have to keep doing what we're doing more yeah, and more. Yeah, so we want to all be supportive of this initiative. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad you are seeing that because, you know, Justin Dart was, like, so fabulous with getting people united. And it, it, same thing with voting. Oh, my goodness. Just think mm-hmm. if people with disabilities would all be registered to vote, we would be such <laughs> a powerful group that the presidential candidates would all be talking about uh, about us and about this group of people. But uh, I think all my listeners can see by the people that have called in, hi, that mm-hmm. you are viewed as a great disability champion and leader, um, and I just so appreciate everything you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you. And like I said, it's always a team effort. Always. Can't get anything done without that. That is so true. That is so very true. Um, well, hi. Wow. This show went fast. Yeah. <laughs> That's because of all the people that are calling in here. Yeah. Uh, but before mm-hmm. we end the show, yep. it is so amazing that you would call in on uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. Mm. And 70 years right now. 70 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. Mm. Isn't it amazing? A woman that's father was a survivor of the Holocaust is now 
look what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, thank you for thank you for making that observation. That's that's really um, well. I, that that's really something, and it also, in a sense, reaffirms the importance of seeing other people as people. You know, as equal human beings. I mean, I think the worst atrocities that have happened in our, you know, life as a civilization um, has been when you've been a, people have made other people less than a person. And that's certainly what the Nazis did to the Jews, less than people, which is why it was okay to exterminate them. And that's at the one extreme the one extreme, but everything else in terms of discrimination is just different variants, you know, completely, it's different in, in kind as well, as well as quality, but it's the same thing of we just want people with disabilities to be seen as full human beings, you know, and, you know, I, I mean, in terms of my personal story, um, I do believe my father uh, would be very, would have been very proud to see where I am now. Um, I mean, he passed away 12 years ago, but I know he was proud of me at the time in terms of the civil rights work I had done on the ADA, on lesbian gay rights, on women's issues, on religious civil rights. You know, I had done sort of the range, and um, I was happy that, that he was proud of me. But like I said, more to do, more to do. More to do, and I'm sure... Um, that he would be proud of you. We are all proud of you. But I was thinking about that today. I was thinking, here's mm-hmm. a woman calling in that's a leader fighting for justice, just as you said, for people not to be viewed as inferior, mm-hmm. and uh, whose father survived the Holocaust and its Holocaust Memorial Day. Mm. How unbelievable is that? Mm. Yep. Well, I'm proud of you, Hi. Actually, I'm proud to know you. Oh, and well, thank be- you. Before we end the show today, mm-hmm. I wanted to see what message you want to leave with our listeners. Well, a pretty simple message. And you've certainly heard it and you've said it. Nothing about us without us. We have to be the leaders in our own fights. We have to be the ones leading the charge. That's how people will see the importance of disability rights. Nothing about us without us. Yes, couldn't be better said. And also, as you all know, we end the show with a quote. And today, wow, that really fits. And that quote is, work gives us dignity, says Tony Quello. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Hi, thank you so much for being with us. You are very welcome, and thank you to all your listeners. All right. Hey, everyone, I will look forward to talking to you all next week. Nothing about us without us. This is Joyce Bender. See you then. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.